0: Hello and welcome to the Tabernacle Podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. Uh, you're a wounded warrior today, aren't you, Ian?
1: Fucking second in six months. Camera up the arse, wasn't it, today? <laughs> so, uh, uh, polyps removed and uh, I'm looking forward to my, uh, my first shit because uh, where they take the polyps out, you normally get blood. Uh, this time, they had to use some blue dye to inflate a a couple of polyps to then capture them. So I'm going to be shitting blue and blood, apparently. So that should be an interesting toilet bowl uh, coming up later this evening.
0: Can you imagine tuning in to your favourite sports podcast, thinking, yeah, I'll get some really intellectual conversation based on football, MMA, boxing. I wonder what the first thing they'll talk about is. A blue and red shit alien toilet humour. Other than that, there's been quite a few things to get through this week. Uh, A few announcements, obviously a recent UFC fight card. We've had the big one coming up this weekend, which I'm debating staying up for or not. I know that you're very much uh, of the mindset that you definitely get up for it. Of course, we are talking about UFC 295, uh, headed by former UFC lightweight champion, Yeezy Perhaska, who's making his uh, highly anticipated return this weekend. He is facing former middleweight champion and one of Ian's favourites, Alex Pereira, in the main event. Um, I, I get the feeling we're going to disagree on this, on how this goes. I'm going to let you run with this first, because I know that you have been eagerly awaiting this. And I know that you are very excited for this. So the floor is yours, Ian.
1: So, I mean, uh, Yeezy gave the title up, didn't he? He, he freshly won it uh, in a bit of a, a, a great fight and an amazing comeback uh, against Glover Teixeira and then immediately got injured. So he gave up the fight um, on the promise that he'd get the first next title shot. Uh, Hill then won it, the vacant belt, and got injured again, uh, carrying on the curse of the, the title, uh, meaning he was out. So then... Um, now we've got uh Yiri on his fight back that he'd been promised to fight against uh Poetang, who is obviously as you say moving up from middleweight. Um, Braska's is actually the number one ranked heavyweight uh after Hill uh because he was the champ. Uh, and Poetang is unranked at light heavyweight because this is his, his uh, light heavyweight debut in MMA, but he did used to fight at this at um. Kickboxing um, in glory. So he's not uh, a particularly new weight class for him. Um, I mean, ultimately, uh, Yuri's a pretty chaotic and unpredictable fighter. Uh, I think you could say, particularly from that victory against Glover, you never really know what he can do. He can do everything relatively well. He can go to the ground and he subbed a high level black belt. He can punch, um, you know, and stand on the feet. Whereas we all know what Per Tang's going to do, which is try and give you some savage uh, calf kicks and pin you against the cage with those heavy hands like he did against uh, Adesanya. So um, a lot of it for me comes down to what do you think Yuri's game plan will be?
0: Did you just say that it's Pereira's debut at light heavyweight? In the UFC, I believe it is, yeah. Ian, 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 your knowledge is, is going downhill. It's got to be the old age that's affecting it. He um, had a fight with Powerbits, uh at 291. It was one of the really middleweight, no, no, light heavyweight. It was what led to this. I'm sure it was. It was shortly after he dropped the middleweight title to Adesanya, wasn't it? Uh, Okay, my bad. Um, Yeah, it it was a really controversial one. It was where um, a lot of people, obviously, Pereira got the nod, and it was a split decision. But a lot thought that there was a robbery that had taken place. I know that uh, Bispin, who I'm going to mention shortly as well, when we come to a different fight. Uh, he was quite an advocate of the fact that Pereira had got extremely lucky. Um, and obviously, there was rumours of a rematch, but it seems like Pereira's just completely skipped that. But yeah, it was uh, in July, I think it was. It wasn't that long ago. Oh, okay.
1: Um, I mean, the sheen's slightly been taken off the event generally because of John Jones' removal, hasn't it, really? Um, that was yeah. the, he was the original main event against uh, Stipe, uh, got injured and ripped a pectoral muscle. So this has been bumped from the co-main to uh the, the the main and obviously uh champ champ status potentially awaits uh Paratan if he can win but um yeah. you said you think you we're going to disagree so who do you think wins
0: i think Yeezy wins it um because of the, and it's a bit controversial i know that the champ champ status seems to be in the offing it seems to be uh, well fated and Pereira is, I believe, the betting favourite, and I think a lot of people will bet him here. The problem that I've got with that, despite the fact that obviously the 17 months out for Prohaska is definitely going to be a factor, is that Prohaska has got significantly more variety in terms of what he can do, in terms of his his weaponry. Uh, Obviously, Pereira is a two-time glory kickboxing champion. He um, is... Clever in striking with all the limbs that he can possibly use. But he doesn't feature a lot of diversity for me in his attack. I think whereas uh, Yeezy is, he's obviously got a very good reach. He's quite long. Um, I think he suffers in punching power in comparison to Pereira. But his defense is all about timing. It's all about slipping. It's all about getting those counters in there. Um, I just get the feeling that Prasca will disrupt his timing, disrupt his entire game plan, essentially, and take him out. I actually think he knocks him out as well, I think, controversially. I think he takes him down. I think the Adesanya fight has probably taken a little bit out of him, and he hasn't exactly shown that he is dominant at light heavyweight. And I think, as we've already said, there was a lot of controversy in his fight at two nine one. I think this is a step above. We all know how good Yeezy is, and I think Yeezy takes it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it might be one of the first times as well that Pereira is actually probably going to be fighting the bigger man on the day because Pereira is a fucking huge guy and used to cut a huge amount of weight to get to um, middleweight. So even at light heavyweight, it looks pretty big. But I'm pretty sure Yeezy, before he joined the UFC, he was in a few other promotions, seemed to think, remember them signing him from Rising, a uh, Japanese promotion, I think. and I'm pretty sure he was their heavyweight champion. So he has cut weight to get down to, to uh, 05. So he's, you know, a fucking big fella as well. But um, you're definitely right that he has more variety to his game. If uh, Pereira can keep it on his feet, then I think I could see a knockout for Pereira. But as you say, if um, Yuri is a bit crafty and uses that better range of skills as he showed that he could grapple with Glover Teixeira in that fight and stuff the takedowns, um, then it's probably a 50-50 fight for me. It's very, very hard to call. It could definitely go either way and you could make an argument for either of them pretty easily. It's all
0: about the calf kick as well. I think Pereira will have that available to him all day because of the fact that Praska comes in with quite a wide stance. He's essentially begging to get that kick in. Um, the issue that he's going to have is every time he goes to go, uh, go for that kick, which he's obviously very good at, he's very skilled at, and he's quite good at masking it, which is clearly a benefit to him. But every single time he's going to go for that, he risks the opportunity of Prahaska just landing a swift jab on him. And again, I think Pereira has more power, but that doesn't say that, Pahazka, that isn't to say that Prahaska can't knock someone out, and I'm sure I wouldn't want to be punched by him. Obviously, despite the fact that we've discussed in previous episodes, I'd be able to knock out like Ngannou and stuff and take an easy jab from him. I would be worried about this, and I think the Adesanya knockout is definitely going to be still at play, and it's still going to be in the back of his mind.
1: It's those calf kicks, like you say, though, that he whips them in so quick, and without you being able to see him come in, and two or three of them, particularly on your lead foot, is going to start to pay dividends in terms of your movement. I I don't know if you saw it, there was a little clip this week of, in the build-up of it, um, Pereira uh, gives Daniel Cormier a 25% calf kick. Um, They're filming it as part of, like, the, you know, the build-up and the things like that. And, like, he he, he can hardly walk. And he's like, just give me, like, 25%. Just let me know what it feels like. And he's, like, limping about and shit. So you imagine, like... Three or four quick hundred percent calf kicks like that when they're very hard to check because they're coming low and quick as well. Um, that that could definitely be uh, a game changer. But um, I am going to go with Pertang only because um, you know um, I love him and I love his his the style uh, of the fighter I expect to watch. He's not going to try and grapple; really, he's going to stand and trade for the
0: knockout. So um, it would seem we we're opposed on views. That's a surprise. What is it with these build-ups to fights involving someone turning around saying, oh, do us a favour, just give us a, a 25% leg kick? We obviously saw it with Tom Aspinall and, and Eddie Hall the other week. Should we just not do that? Should we not let these professionally trained fighters kick me and hurt me? Like, what? what is the point? Well, there's a bit
1: of a difference between that. Like, even Eddie Hall was just, like, a strong man. You get loads of these random weirdos that want to get choked out by fighters. But, you know, DC is... a former light heavyweight and heavyweight champ. You know, all right, he's a commentator now. He's, uh, you know, a little bit rotund and always was when he fought. But, you know, he's not a normal person. He's trained his whole life. So for him to be limping about after a 25% kick, I was like, Jesus, that must
0: be brutal when he hits you with one of those. Talk of DC reminds me of the fact that there's been, I don't know why it pops into my head, but there's been talk of... Brock Lesnar returning for UFC 300. It just reminded me of the time that I think Brock Lesnar was still a WWE champion at the time, and he got into the ring um, and squared up to to DC. Apparently, that's been quashed. I think Dana has come out and said, I can't see him ever returning. I think he's done. wasn't a definite no, but he he definitely said that it was unlikely. And then I think he, he ruled out Ronda Rousey coming back for UFC 300. But realistically, who really cares about Ronda Rousey coming back?
1: Yeah, I mean, even Brock now, he's not going to be the Brock of old as he's 10 years removed from when he came steaming in at least. So I wouldn't be bothered about it. and I can't see anyone into who they'd even put him against uh, to have a chance these days um, in terms of a big draw like that. So, yeah, I I
0: can't see that happening uh, at all, personally. Yeah. Uh, the, The main one for us British fans, or in my opinion, anyway, is the co-main event. So we've got Tom Aspinall and Sergey Pavlovich. Uh, it is for the interim heavyweight title. This obviously is replacing the John Jones fight. And I know that you're very upset about that and still crying inside. Um, I'm going to start this by stating what Michael Bispin's opinions on this is, because he has got a hell of a lot of backlash. And the worst thing is, I don't necessarily disagree with it. So he's come out. And he said he's been talking about Tom Aspinall's immediate future, again, because of the bias, the nationality, I'm sure. Um he has essentially said that Tom Aspinall is going to make this look quote unquote easy. Uh he said he's gonna jab him, he's gonna change the levels, he's gonna take him down, and he'll finish him in the first round. He also said that after he beats him, if John Jones fancied that fight against Aspinall, which again, we've got our own opinions on what happens with John Jones following. But if you fancied that fight, that Tom Aspinall beats John Jones and dominates the heavyweight division for some time, he'll retire. And again, quote unquote, as the greatest heavyweight champion that the UFC has ever seen.
1: I mean it's pretty crazy talk, but they are like best mates equally, so it doesn't surprise me at all. Um I think they might I think um Aspinall might even train out of Bisping's old gym. They might share his former trainer. So it's definitely a mate bullying up his mate. I mean, I think he's definitely got a good chance in this, but I definitely wouldn't be fancying him against John Jones. But John Jones obviously has been so inactive over um, the last period. Um, I mean, I think I saw a, a stat the other week that John Jones had 12 fights in his first four years in the UFC, and then he's had ten fights in the last ten years, so like his complete inactivity, uh, and that comes back to that point with yeah, uh, um, Yeezy is is the ring rust. You know how yeah. does he uh, how does he do? Um, I mean Pavlich is the number one ranked heavyweight after Jones with an eighteen and one record. Aspinall is currently ranked number four, thirteen and three. Um, Pavlovich is coming off six first-round victories in a row, so uh, you know what he's going to try and do, and he's always going to try and do it pretty quickly. Um, He might be the hardest-hitting heavyweight in the UFC now that Ngannou's gone, whereas Aspinall probably could lay a claim to be the hardest-kicking heavyweight in the UFC, I would say. So both of their their strengths definitely uh, are towards uh, a stand-up fight. However, Aspinall has a very underrated ground game. Um, he's a, a jiu-jitsu black belt. So clearly the sensible option for him would be to use his kicks, which is you know, one of his major weapons, to just whack away at that lead leg of Pavlovich and try and weather the storm in the first round. That's going to then have an effect on Pavlovich's ability to um, throw the power with the power that we know that he's all got and then if I was Aspinall, I'd be looking to try and take him down and dominate him on the ground. So, um, if he can weather the storm, I think this is Aspinall's fight to lose, personally.
0: I do. And it's interesting saying that, because you say that maybe going back a year or so, and everyone were back in Pavlovich to run through the division. There was talk of him being able to dominate John Jones at one point. I honestly think Aspinall is severely underrated. I think the only blemish on his UFC career is obviously the Curtis Blades fight, which wasn't really a fight. There was obviously a shock injury in that. I think if that injury doesn't happen, he probably finishes Curtis Blades. And I would have liked to have seen that run back, obviously, with scheduling. It hasn't really been a viable option and I don't think you'll ever see that fight again in the future regardless of what happens because obviously Blades is getting on a little bit and if Aspinall continues his rise the championship is there to be, to be taken by him he started this as an underdog and I told you at the time when the odds came out that I was a little bit surprised by that he has flipped the day before or the, the two days before the fight and he's now odds on favourite I don't think this is going to go past three rounds, uh, or two rounds, sorry. I think this gets finished in the first, maybe second, but I'd be shocked if it doesn't finish in the first. And I think Aspinall takes him out. And if Aspinall can knock him out rather than submit him, I think it's the biggest statement that anyone can potentially make in the heavyweight division at this time. And I I would like to see an Aspinall-John Jones fight. Don't think it'll happen. And I don't think John Jones necessarily has anything to gain from that fight but I don't see any way that Aspinall doesn't go on to dominate this division for a long period of time I might eat my words within a couple of days and we might see him get sparked out and that would be gutting for me but he's one of these fighters that has been so underrated for such a long period of time it's nice to finally see him getting near the top and I think he's on the verge of getting the big one personally.
1: Yeah I I mean I think that it, it I, I, I actually don't think it will go out in the first round. I think Aspinall will just try and slow things down, weather the storm, see what kind of gas tank Pavlovich has got for the later rounds because he's obviously had uh, those six first round finishes. I mean, he did lose before those six first round finishes. His sole loss is to Alistair Overeem and that was an aging Overeem. It wasn't Overeem when he was juicy as fuck. So he has got holes in his game and maybe isn't quite as scary as everybody's making him out, um, the people that he's run through. So, uh, and I think I agree with you that Aspinall is pretty underrated, but um, it's so competitive these days, um, the UFC generally in all the weights. And when they're constantly signing these people, I think it's hard to say in a lot of divisions that someone's going to rule over it for a long time. I wouldn't be surprised to see Aspinall win, but if he has to go against John Jones... I don't think I'd be backing him against John Jones.
0: Slightly off topic just because I can see you looking to your left um at the TV, quite worried. Has something happened in the game that you currently have on live in the Liverpool and Toulouse match?
1: Turn them down. <laughs> <laughs> just just to
0: top off a fantastic week.
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> I mean, say so it's a dog it's a dog shit team and it, um, we're out. Oh, no, it might be might be offside.
0: Stupid V A R.
1: Uh, well, still, we're,
0: all right. While we're going through that, uh, obviously there's an the excitement of football still to come. Um, do you want to make a prediction then at all for Aspinall Pavlovich? Do you want to confirm which um, way you're going?
1: I think Aspinall subs him
0: round three. Ooh, interesting. I mean, I, I've got to back Aspinall. I would be doing us a disservice, even if I didn't think he were going to win. But I do think he's going to win. I think he sparks him out in the first. I think it's going to be a very quick... Pavlovich is going to come and try and throw, and I think he's going to get caught, and I think that'll be the end of that. Um, there's been some big announcements as well from Dana White on his social media page. Um, I think it was yesterday, was it maybe, or the day before. He has confirmed that Sean Strickland is set to defend his title against duplisis Uh, It's his first title defence, of course, since he upset Adesanya in September at UFC 293. Uh was expected to challenge for the belt before obviously injuries got in his way, Adesanya's now taken a step back, and I think there were talk of him taking three years out, which is is ludicrous. Um, and uh, Kimaev is, is fresh off, Chimaev is fresh off a win at uh, over Usman at 294. So I think that that's probably the next fight for whoever wins Strickland and Duplisis. Um Any favourites early going into this? Because De seems to have been underrated and again, sort of thrown to the side. And I felt a bit sorry for him building up to this. He's finally got his chance. Is he going to take it?
1: Uh, I mean, he's definitely underrated and he's an absolutely huge middleweight. But um, I think if Strickland can put on, what you know, the the pressures on Strickland to show, show whether or not the performance against Adesanya was, that's the level of striker and that he can do. Or... Was it one of those like what, once in a lifetime performance where we pulled something out of the bag? But um, Deplissis is incredibly well rounded, but it's just whether we can get that box past that box in that jab of of um, Strickland. So um, Deplissis has probably been the most deserving contender for a little while now and been, as you say, skipped over a few times. Um, so he definitely deserves his chance, I'd say. But um, yeah, that'd be an interesting
0: fight. We've also got uh, in February. The announcement of the return of Volkanovski, obviously fresh off the the very crushing defeat that we watched uh, against the new pound-for-pound pound number one in the UFC rankings. Um, it's the featherweight title now, back into his own division where he's the champion. He's going to be defending it. I think we all knew who it was going to be. It's uh, Tapura. Uh, obviously, Volkanovski had earned quite a lot of respect in stepping up to that fight against Islam at short notice. But he's now back at 145. He has to take on a fresh, exciting young prospect in Tapura, who obviously uh, recently beat, beat down Josh Emma in a five round fight. Um, I've got a back folk there. Obviously, we'll talk about it far more when we get closer to it. I think even with the demons in his head, everything that we discussed before, he's surely got too much for Tapura.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, and you mentioned his name, do you, little one for you? Do you know what Islam and Khabib have in common? They are uh, only two men to ever have done something in the UFC.
0: Uh, go unbeaten. Their dad's the coach. I don't know. Uh,
1: no, it is that they're the only two act or they're the only two people that have ever knocked John Jones off the pound for pound number one ranking when jones has been an active fighter so there you go Interesting. um but um yeah i mean you think he as long as the, the he's got the you know gets that loss off his mind he did take it on short notice so you don't know if it would affect him but um you know tapura will probably see a slight fancy himself a bit more because sort of seeing a bit of a weakness if that's the right word or certainly seeing Volk lose that quickly that would have buoyed his confidence. But yeah, if we get anything like the Volk we're used to, it should steamroll him really, shouldn't he?
0: We also have the final announcement, which was quite strange, and we were discussing this just before we came online in terms of the timing for this, because this is two nine nine. It's the rematch between Sean O'Malley and Marlon Vera. It's not Necessarily odd with regards to who he's fighting. It was long rumored and expected. It's the fact that this has been put on 299 when it could have easily been bumped up to 300 centenary card. Sean O'Malley is quite a big draw. Obviously, Sugar looking to make his first defense of the Bantamweight title. He's fighting the man who beat him on his way up to try and obviously wrong that or right that wrong that he previously had. Um, he's bounced back with four wins since that loss. Obviously, he earned a title shot against Sterling. Took it at two nine two. Fantastic right hand. Always fun to watch that fight. Is absolutely dripping with the narrative potential. Obviously because he's trying to look to beat the man that beat him. And I'm sure, as you've already seen with O'Malley, in all the build up to any one of his fights, he will cause a lot of controversy. He'll have a lot to say for himself. And then, obviously, the bantamweight decision uh, division will be lit up with uh, a little bit of talk of who's going to smack who just before the fight. But again, for me, O'Malley has to take it. Um, I think he's going to be quite a big favourite going into this.
1: Uh, he's definitely improved. I mean, he's, he's uh, Cheeto, as you say, is the only man to beat him. So that's the, the kind of um, backstory behind why the fight's made. But Cheeto's quite low down the rankings. I mean, this is one of those ones for me that's kind of bullshit because I think given O'Malley now is maybe like we've talked about, maybe one of the rising stars after maybe Connor and John Jones, he might be one of the biggest stars in the UFC. Clearly, Dash Vili is the more deserving uh, contender the, the, for the fight over uh, Vera. Um, and it feels like the UFC have kind of caved and said to him, well, you want your chance to avenge your loss? We'll, we'll give it to you. But um, I personally think um, it would be a far more dangerous fight for him if he was fighting um Dash really, And Dash really is the more, deserver, more deserving contender. And the only reason he didn't get a shot before was because obviously his best mates and said he wouldn't fight Sterling when Sterling was the champ. So I kind of think that uh, in Dana as well, Dana did, at the time said that he thought that was a bit of a stupid decision and something that fighters shouldn't do. And I can't help but feel he's kind of punishing Dash really a little bit here. This is his way of saying fuck you for not fighting your mate when you were the most deserving contender, you don't get the chance to now call it. But, um, yeah, I think an an improved version of um, O'Malley that we've seen each fight is one of those fighters when someone comes into the UFC so young. Every fight you see a big improvement and them getting better and better. Uh, I would probably agree with you. I think he takes that.
0: It is definitely one of those where, I completely agree. Giving a title shot to someone who's so far down the rankings, it's literally just to appease the champion for me. And I absolutely guarantee that you are spot on in terms of just Phillies not getting the title shot out of whether it's spite, whether it's punishment. But part of me doesn't disagree with that. And part of me thinks, well, you know what? You had your chance. You decided against it. This is the fight game. It doesn't matter if it's your friend. It doesn't matter if it's a family member. Don't get into the fight game and don't get into a position where you want to be the best if you don't want to beat the best, regardless of who it is. So, you know, serves him right in some sense. Yeah,
1: again, I always think if, you, if you're if you fighting and you're training in camp, particularly at the same weight, you should be aware that there's a possibility that one day you're going to have to fight one of your training partners, whether you're mates or not. And all right, that must be difficult. Um Football players, a little bit different. Their mates, you know, when they go away of England and then have to play with each other, uh, against each other in the week and, you know, smash into each other. Say, not quite the same as fighting, admittedly. But, yeah, uh, I don't disagree. I think Dana's definitely holding a bit of a vengeful uh, grudge against Das Vili, really. but... Dash really must be next, surely, after that fight. It's going to be hard for Dana to deny him. It's just whether or not he, uh, Dash Philly really takes a fight in the meantime to keep active or whether he holds on for the winner. Give it th- Is it in March, that one, I think, hasn't it been announced? Before? Yeah,
0: yeah, I believe so. Um, quickly run through UFC Sao Paulo. I think it's probably only worth covering the main event in terms of Jelton, Almeida and uh, Derek Lewis. Um, a lot of I wouldn't say controversy has come out of this, but some of the comments that I've seen online, I mean, it's always Twitter and or X or whatever it's called these days where you see the most ludicrous things known to man. There's been calls for Almeida to be uh, taken off the roster, to have his contract taken off him. It's too boring. He's not entertaining enough. Essentially, they're criticising him for not going toe-to-toe with one of the hardest hitters in UFC history in Derek Lewis and for completely smothering and dominating him using wrestling skills, which it's the right thing to do, isn't it?
1: hundred percent. If you want to win the fight and you know, it's not about, you know, sometimes how you win and Derek Lewis, as much as he's the greatest knockout artist in terms of KOs in, in history, you know, he's been in some fucking boring fights as well. You know, the, the one against Ingan who springs to mind immediately um, and Almeida, sometimes you've just got to do what you've got to do to keep moving up those rankings and secure that victory. So um, I haven't seen the fight. I didn't actually watch that one. Um, and despite having a bit of time uh, off, but obviously today after the uh, procedure, it was something I was going to try and fit in um, watching that. But um, I didn't get a chance. So I haven't actually seen it. But I understand it was a pretty sort of smothering ground game of 25 minutes just basically controlling him on the ground really so not the greatest of fights to uh, not the greatest of spectacles but efficient and did what he needs to do
0: oh exactly that and if people turn around and say to Derek Lewis well you only beat Ngannou who people have said is one of the greatest MMA heavyweights of all time by boring him to death he's not going to sit there like "Ah, oh, you know what yeah you spot on there um you should take that win off my record because uh it wasn't how you wanted me to win. whole point of UFC and, and general MMA is you can use all types of skills. This isn't a boxing fight. Uh, it isn't you know kickboxing. It isn't something specific. You do what you do, and you do what you need to do to win. So weird, weird people online, as you would expect, so whatever, essentially to that.
1: Ridiculous. I mean you can't say some kick kick someone off the roster for winning boringly. I've definitely <laughs> seen you know, I haven't seen it, but as you say, I guarantee there've been far more boring fights than that. Uh, you know, um that have gone down and there haven't been the calls for that. But yeah, that was kind of crazy. The only other one was a bit of a shock, it was a massive underdog, I think, something like five or six to one, Nicholas Dalby, uh, and then beat the um highly rated Bonfim. Um so that one I think was a bit of a shock. Uh, in terms of purely on the odds alone. But Dalby's been around the block and is certainly no mug, so I wouldn't have said that really uh, surprised
0: me. Got to start with the Mighty Whites, haven't we? Because uh, it absolutely made my weekend this weekend just gone. Uh, Leeds, of course, I'm talking about beating Leicester 1-0 in the most anticipated football match of the year, would you say?
1: Undoubtedly. I mean, by a long way without completely, um, you know, nobody could wait for that match. But um, I only saw the first half because uh, I was going to Bournemouth at the weekend to see the family. So I was getting up crazy early. So I watched the first half. But fair play to him from the first half. Leeds completely looked in control, looked the better team, Um, had lion's share of possession, kind of nullified Leicester. Um, and what they seem to be pretty good at in terms of just dominating, getting on the ball. Um, And if the second half was anything similar than that, then um, it was well-deserved, I would say.
0: Yeah, I think that the stats overall were that Leicester ended up with about 62% possession, but that's not necessarily against what I thought would happen. And obviously we discussed this last week in a bit more detail, but Leicester are a very, not boring, but possession-based, slow build-up team. They look to uh, wear out their opponents by just taking it slow, nullifying the opposition's game, looking for the wings. They've got some unbelievable wingers, by the way. Uh, I think it was Fatua who hit the crossbar in the first half and he is some player. I think he's on loan from Sporting. Um, Unbelievable effort. Obviously, it didn't go in, thankfully. But um, I think they were a little bit taken aback by the intensity shown by Leeds. They obviously went at them straight away. There was a bit in the fifth, between the 5th and 10th minute where they tried to play it out from the back. They felt that they were pressured. Ball comes over the top and about 10 yards into their own half, Pascal Stroik leads his centre-back, chests it down and chests it into the box. So they're, they're a bit like, what on earth is going on here? We, we've taken the midfield down, we've nullified the wings and all of a sudden your centre-back's chest in the ball to try and get an assist in the first like, 10 minutes. Um, so I, I was really impressed by them. Um, as you can imagine, made my night in Ponty all the more sweeter. It was absolutely dead, a little bit scary. Uh, there was a guy with a knife at one point trying to get into biggies because he refused to pay the £10 entry. So it <laughs> sums up uh, the type of place that Ponty is. But yeah, that's
1: that. and, uh, would you say that's the best you've uh, seen Leeds play all season?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Under Daniel Farke, it was the most complete performance this season. I thought they were fantastic against Watford. Uh, They were fantastic in the first half against Huddersfield. Obviously, the opposition is 10 times more difficult when you're playing Leicester away. The only thing I would say, I think it suits Leeds to play a team like Leicester away. And I was surprised that they didn't do the same against Southampton. I think that game is considerably more difficult when Leeds are at home. Because, obviously, you have to appease your fans when you're at home. You have to be a little bit more outgoing. Um, obviously, we'll see. And I have to give props to Ilian Meslier, who made an unbelievable last-minute save. It, it looked certain that Dewsbury Hall had headed the ball into the back of the net and got a last-minute equaliser. Ailing comes on, obviously makes a mess of it straight away. What a shock. But, yeah, it's, it's an absolutely outstanding save. And if you haven't seen that before... Um, or before listening to this, definitely take a look at it. But obviously Leicester still have that comfort at the top of the league. They are 11 points clear of us. Obviously we have Plymouth this weekend and knowing Leeds will probably lose that. But Ipswich are starting to fall away. They've drawn the last two games against struggling Birmingham and struggling Rotherham. So maybe, just maybe, it's where the league starts to turn a little bit. Just before Christmas, a lovely Christmas present would be that we would be in the top two by then. Long way to go yet, yeah. but um, Premier League then. So, there were two very, very controversial games. Where do you want to start? Should we start with Spurs-Chelsea or with Arsenal-Newcastle?
1: Well, let's go of Arsenal New- uh, Arsenal-Newcastle New Arsenal first uh, in terms of the, the, the VAR decisions and the goal. Um, I can't remember a time where there's probably been quite so many issues in one goal or... S- s- So there's basically three elements to this, wasn't there, of was it a goal or not? So the first one was, you know, I can't remember who it was that crossed it, but did the ball go out? Don't know about your view, but yes, in my opinion, it went out.
0: Disagree. Um, I mean, it was very, very close, but there was the... uh, Not ESPN. Being Sports had got the exclusive angle, didn't they? They had a camera uh, on the um the sideline which basically goes directly behind the ball and it shows that there must be i mean we're talking like an inch if that that keeps the ball in but it, it's very close i didn't I see
1: that, that angle but yeah, every yeah. angle i saw it looked like it had gone out you got joe linton did he foul the arsenal player when they came in i mean Again, the answer has to be yes. It basically pushes him in the back, doesn't he? Like it's a complete... F- Whether that would have made a difference or not and that person would have scored. But it's pretty hard to say that that wasn't a foul. And then I think the third element was, was Gordon offside. I don't think he was.
0: Yeah, the, the offside, I think, is a little bit more obvious in the sense that there wasn't enough evidence to overrule it. And I agree with that. The push, it, it does look like a push to me. I can't... I can't argue with that. It seems to be sort of a, a two-handed push into his back, which the issue that you have these days is players tend to make quite a meal of any contact they get. I think if it's anywhere on else on the pitch, it's probably a foul and it's probably an easy foul to give, but because it results in a goal. Yeah, I don't know. Um, weirdly, there was one in the Champions League last night, Cameron war uh, Oh, God, it escaped my but it was less than that and it ended up within a, a disallowed goal. So it's that consistency that we continue to lack and I think we will continue to lack for a, a long while. The funniest part, of course, is Arteta's post-match comments. He um, went Jurgen Klopp on us. He went absolutely nuclear.
1: Full went mental, didn't he? Lost his lost his rag, lost his shit. Um, yeah, surprising because he's usually quite a calm guy, isn't he? So that probably shows you the level of frustration um but it was um a good weekend for city uh and it opened it was also i thought good obviously that it keeps the league a little bit more interesting saves anyone from running away with it in terms of spurs if spurs had won they would have gone a few points clear above city as uh, so a city stay top and um i i didn't see it i can't remember what i was doing monday night but um sounds like less like i missed a right fucking ding dong uh, of a match i've seen a few of the uh the red cards and the goals uh, since, but um sounds like it was a blinding game of football Monday.
0: Yeah, I think they called it the greatest Monday night football of all time, which it's hard to disagree with it. It was one of those where I'm not a fan of VAR. We've again, discussed it quite in detail on these, these episodes where VAR tends to get more wrong than it gets right. Um, if it's used correctly, we wouldn't be talking about it every single week, would we? But in this instance, despite the fact that it was slowing down the game quite considerably, I think it got the majority of decisions right. I think both, uh, ironically, uh, Udogi and um, escapes me the other one Romero. Romero, should, yeah, should have both been sent off earlier. Romero does the typical Beckham, which I've no idea how he escapes a red, and Udogi dives in two footed, which I haven't seen a two footed tackle like that in a long time. And gets a yellow card. So I'm not sure what the VAR is doing there. They will then get the decision right, of course, when uh, Chelsea get the penalty later on. Romero, I know you said he thought you were a little bit harsh, but he follows through. You can't make contact with someone just below the knee. I think that he can do more to stop that. Results in a red card and it results in a penalty to the equaliser. I didn't think Chelsea were that good. I thought floor one was one of the most flattering scorelines they could possibly got. Uh, I think that Nicholas Jackson has scored probably the worst hat-trick of all time. It was just essentially nine men playing a high line, standing on the halfway line and the ball getting played over the top. And he couldn't miss the majority of chances. He then obviously misses the chance at the very end to get his fourth goal. But yeah, you you definitely missed an exciting game, regardless of the VAR decisions.
1: I mean, it just seems stupid as well from Spurs to maintain such a high line. With nine men, they're playing, trying to play offside on the halfway line with, you know, two two of their defenders sent off and they'd have to bring Eric Dyer on. So um, that seemed a pretty crazy move. It's a bit silly for man. He should have maybe just tried to tighten things up, you know, hold on for a point. Or, um, But yeah, for, for it, from Liverpool's point of view, it's a good thing because it's closed the league up. Not let Spurs run away with it. We don't want Spurs top. I think we all know an unbearable Spurs fan uh, who starts trying to pretend that, you know, but highlights, uh, you you know, no matter just when you think they're not getting, they're getting less and less Spursy, they come roaring back in and showing, nope, they can still throw away a game. So, uh, I mean, the most most interesting
0: part of it for me, I, I get the criticism of the, You've got nine men on the field. Why are you playing a high line, certainly on the halfway line? Why would you bother? Why aren't you trying? Because at that point, it's one-all. So why not try and, best you can, put a low block on, defend as best you can. The issue that with that is that goes completely against my footballing principles as a, a Bielsa follower, because it's exactly what Marcelo Bielsa would have done in some of those games. Obviously, we ended up being battered 7-1 and et cetera, et cetera. Certainly, I remember the game against you was pretty humiliating, but it's 2-1, it gets to the 92nd minute, I think, or maybe even the 93rd minute, and Son gets one-on-one. And if Son scores that, and they equalise, and they draw that game 2 all, people are saying, that's an unbelievable display of bravery from Ange, it's worked fantastically, people are laughing at Pochettino, but as it happens, obviously, he missed, and Sod's law, they go up the other end and score another couple, so... <laughs> Yeah, I can see both ways in regards to keeping Liverpool close. The way that you're playing against Toulouse tonight <laughs> and the way that you played against Luton last weekend, I don't think it matters, does it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's
1: a dog shit team he put out tonight. He's put on a few of the bigger boys now, um, and it's still not making any difference uh, now that we scored to get one back. And then they went up the other end quite a couple of minutes later and scored. So it's 3 1 to lose at the moment. But yeah, if you're trying to harbour any hope of a top four, or let's not pretend we are having a title challenge, but at least top four, you've got to beat Luton away. Um, I mean, we had 23 shots compared to their five. Of those uh, five they had, they had four on target, and I think we had six on target. You had Darwin miss a Patrick Bamford-esque chance where me or you could have shanked it in, and it's actually harder to miss than it is to score. Uh, and then we get really lucky at the end with uh, Diaz equaliser. Otherwise, it would have been thoroughly embarrassing to lose to Luton. But, yeah, two points dropped, and we would have been second a point behind City if we'd won. So, yeah, it's definitely one that, at the end of the season, you could look back on and be like, what the fuck?
0: I mean, i would be honest. I thought Luton were good value for three points as well. I thought, obviously, you had not a lot of chances, and... The, the miss from Nunes is is comical, and I know it gets flagged offside, but when it looks back on the replay, had it have gone to VAR, he wasn't offside, and <laughs> it had definitely been a, a clear goal. I don't understand how he's missed it. it. As you say, Patrick Bamford-esque is a perfect way to describe it. The header from Diaz and the ball in for Diaz at the very end is peach perfect, and if you do that more often during the game, you probably run away with it. And obviously, with everything that's going on with Luis Diaz at the moment, and certainly at that point in time, it was... Uh, very apt that it was him that would get the equaliser. And I know that it's been announced today that his father has actually been released, which is, yeah, I was just about to say that. I didn't know if you've seen yeah. that.
1: That's uh, good news, obviously, because you, you've been at work, whereas uh, I haven't, but um, yeah, his father's actually been released today. So hopefully we'll see him back. I mean, he did start today's game, but he's not really looked, been at the races, uh, to be honest. And again, when something like that's going on, you can fully understand why he's got other shit on his mind. Um but um, quick round up of the Champions League, then. Um, yeah. So I mean, Tuesday's game. Um, one of the headlines was obviously Barca losing to, to Shakhtar. Um, pretty crazy stat. This one. This is Ledwandowski's longest dr- goal drought in twelve years. Six games. <laughs> it's mental, terrible. Isn't it? Terrible. 12 years, that's his longest goal drought. I was like, Jesus Christ, what a goal machine that uh, he, he has been for the teams that he's played for. But um that was a bit of a shock result. You had AC Milan beating PSG to throw that group quite open. Um afleco Madrid spanking Celtic, who had a man sent off, didn't they? 6-0. Um and City uh with a relatively cr- comfortable um 3-0 win against young boys with uh, a couple for for Harland.
0: I really liked Foden's goal as well for City. So that's the game that I chose to watch on that night. And the ball across, I think it's from greylish And it's one of those touches where it's so picture-perfect. The, the finish is sweet as well. It's nothing out of the ordinary, especially for, for City and especially for Foden. But it's that first touch. And whenever you see a first touch, that just takes it away from the man, lays it perfectly off for him, gets him in his stride. It's always... You know, chef's kiss is that. uh, I know Ali McCoyst on commentary thought that was fantastic as well. Um, Question for you, just randomly. Why have we still got Scottish teams in in the Champions League? Every single year, it seems to be that they go into the group stage. It's always Celtic, more often than not, obviously, other than the slight appearance from Rangers under CBG, They get spanked. They end up getting kicked out. They struggle in the Europa League if they get put in there, and then they leave again are they just there to make up numbers
1: yeah well uh, how many other countries could you say the same that um you know you see in there
0: you know I Copenh- Copenh-
1: Copenhagen um all right they did Man <laughs> you and we'll we'll come on to that but how many years have they been in the champions league pretty consistently every year and literally never get out of the group stage but um what a fantastic uh, result for them that was on uh moving on to the wednesday nights um again, watching Man U at the moment, or watch, I didn't obviously watch the game because I never watch Man U games, but watching it all unfold, it reminds me of the Mourinho era where I just sit and smile and it's just like watching a car crash in slow motion and you just love it and you just want them to retain him in the position so they just get worse and worse. Um, I absolutely love it, um, but the only the only uh, high point for them was the another two goals from Hoyland, uh, which actually makes him the top scorer in the champions league with uh, five goals in four games for man u uh, but hasn't scored a goal in the premier league yet in nine games so uh, obviously got his shooting boots on for the champions league but not in the premier league yet
0: and of course he's only got two games left to add to that tally because I'll be honest I'd be shocked if they get out of the champions league as it stands I mean a result like that when you're 2-0 up and you just absolutely capitulate. The red card is harsh, in, in my opinion. I can see why it's been given for Rashford, but it's one of those where he basically puts his left foot across... Uh, I can't remember the name of the... I think it was Jella or Yeller, or something like that. 42nd minute. Puts his left foot across him to try and shield the ball, but because he kind of puts his left leg ahead of Rashford it ends up with his studs going against his shin. There's clearly no intent there at all, but he immediately gets a straight red card. And VAR take their sweet time in trying to review it, and they decide, yeah, uh, it's it's definitely a red card. It really harsh for me, but again, I'm I'm a Leeds fan, so it's hard to have any sympathy for Manchester United. Uh, and then following that, they just absolutely capitulate. They bring it back with a penalty. Obviously, I think it was uh ye old ratface who, who dispatched it and then as the game comes to an end the absolute irony that the winner was scored by Rooney.
1: Indeed. Um but yeah I, I mean it's 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 brilliant to watch. Um and as you say, they're gonna be struggling to get out of the group. They I mean I'm sure they've probably got to win both their last games to stand a chance um and that's a that's a tall order um
0: well, they have to beat galatasaray and they've never beaten galatasaray away for one um and then your last game is against munich yeah who are a, a very scary proposition with i'd argue the best striker in the world at this point in time he's the most in form and i would put him above Haaland. i think he's, he's certainly
1: certainly uh, up there in terms of you know what he's doing both them two are the the, the, the top the top dogs for sure um uh, only thing would be will will Bayern be through by that point, because I assume if Bayern win their next game against Copenhagen, then they'll probably be through. So man, you might get lucky and they rest a few players. But equally, given the infamous turnaround from uh the scum on Bayern in the ninety-nine Champions League final. That, that's one of those games that I find Munich um, never, ever putting in a weakened team out against Man U. And if there's a chance to be able to um, decimate their dreams of going through and give them a hiding because of how well they're playing, I would have thought Bayern would probably do that and not miss the op- opportunity to stick the boot in further.
0: Very little on boxing this week, as it always seems to be. Um, we're having an absence of, of bigger fights, uh, certainly at the end of the year. There is a very strange card that seems to be opening up uh, at the end of uh, December. I think it was the 23rd of December. We we'll say there was originally the fight between Usyk and Fury. We know now that has been rearranged, or we hope has been rearranged to February, and it seems like that's in all or- all in order, and we should see that happen finally. There seems to be this weird underlying potential fight of. And Garnu, Anthony Joshua, for what Eddie Hearn, I think, was dubbing Rumble in the Jungle 2. Uh, and Garnu has apparently come out and said, Don't want that fight. I don't want to fight Wilder. I want to fight Fury in my rematch first. I want to get that clarified because clearly he thinks that he can beat him. And a lot of people thought they had already beaten him. The judges disagreed, clearly. But Anthony Joshua is apparently ready to fight him. Uh Eddie Hearn has, has literally come out in the past week and said, not a problem, we'll, we're in talks with that and we'll see what happens there. And apparently, according to, um, I forget, Frank Warren, he says that they're still looking to put on a fight in, in Saudi Arabia around that date. So uh, no one really knows what's going on because promoters seem to be fi- fighting and squabbling over this December 23rd date. Without any fight actually announced as of yet, I don't know what's going to happen here, and I have absolutely no idea here whatsoever.
1: I mean, I still think uh, it, that the, the fight that was supposed to be taking place on that date was obviously Fury Usic. Um, I still don't think that will happen. I know they've moved it back to officially, supposedly, have moved it back to February, but I don't see it happening. I would see, I think, Fury, particularly after the kind of humbling. Victory, if you can call it that, of uh, uh, over Ingarnu. Um, he won't want anything to do with Usik, who can box his head off. Um, and he either retires and realises maybe I'm a little bit past it, or does he look to rematch Ingarnu and maybe train properly? Because I think most people would seem to agree that um, he probably didn't prepare or take Ingarnu seriously um so they can both probably make a nice bit of money running that back um and i think as you say, saying garner's words were because it, 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 i think with his stock being so high at the moment it was put to him the two fights that i said to you that i thought he would be looking for at which is wilder or um aj and he didn't say no but what he said was not yet he says i don't want those fights yet i want the only fight i want is fury rematch first uh, and he did even say, "I'm happy to wait till after February." And he kind of made some sly little dig, like, "That's my fault. Uh, they should have been. He should have been fighting in in uh, December, but because I cut him, he can't fight till February."
0: What do we think about this mystery card? That I mean, Frank Warren has said. Uh, I think he announced it on Talksport that he is looking to stage a fight night in Saudi on the 23rd of December, regardless of the, the Fury and the Usyk um, debacle, should we say. He said it's going to be massive. He said it's going to be uh, well-loved, and he said it's going to be a historical night of boxing filled with um, surprising names, I think he said. Uh, he said he's going to feature boxers from all over the world, fights involving British fighters, and... Um, is he just posturing? Is it this just stereotypical boxing promoter? It's going to be massive. It's going to be massive. And it's Joe Joyce fighting Bois as the main event. Or do we think that he has actually got something that he's going to pull out of the hat here?
1: I mean, there's always the chance, isn't there, with boxers uh, that, you know, they offer someone a ridiculous load of money, particularly when it's in Saudi Arabia. So that you know that they've got the cash to throw at people and some names if they wanted to try and... Uh, do something like that. But yeah, I I can't see. um, I mean, given that Fury is going to be out for a while, technically because of the the, the contract allegedly being signed with Usyk, uh, Ingani would be daft to necessarily wait. Why doesn't he take another fight in the meantime? And if, again, uh, for me, if Josh has said, yes, he's willing to fight him and um, they'll give him the same amount of money, 15-odd mil that he made against Fury... Personally, I think Ngani would be stupid not to take it.
0: But that wouldn't be Frank Warren, would it? That would be Eddie Hearn. So it's one of these where why is Eddie Hearn saying that they're in talks for this fight on the 23rd when Frank Warren is saying, yeah, we've got a card that we're going to announce full of people on my promotion and it's going to be one of the most historic nights in boxing, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I can't help but feel that, as we've seen over the past few years, it's just con men doing what they do best, trying to promote, trying to get money in the pockets, and it's going to be a massive disappointment.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's all uh, it's falling away because of Fury, again, Fury, uh, Usyk is a card that would have, you, you can get away with one of those fights that's so anticipated, you can get away with a dog shit undercard, can't you? Doesn't No one's w- watching or gives a shit who else would have been on that card had that fight taken place. But the fact that that's off, and if they have already paid and that the arena and, and that type of thing, then he's probably scrambling to try and find someone that, that will be able to fight. Um, you know, does he put AJ? I mean, can, again, he fight one of those cats that you were talking about that are, you know, undefeated uh, at heavyweight in the, in the lower top 10 of, of some of the rankings and try and do the, the ruse and sell to the public that that's a good fight that people should pay 30
0: quid to watch. Just finally, then because I can't get this episode finished without mentioning your favourite man in the world. Jack Paul has uh, finally confirmed who his next opponent is going to be. Uh, he is going to be fighting. Are you ready? Can I get a drum roll, Ian? Let's get a... Andre August.
1: Andre August. Not, uh, not uh, Andre November. Um,
0: I mean, No, who... um, he, he's just an unknown boxer. He's got a... I think it's a 10-1-1 record, and he's got five uh, knockouts to his name. He's he's a complete unknown. The the argument is that he is a professional boxer. He's currently on a five-win streak. He's got more knockouts than any of Jake Paul's former opponents. But it's just another way of trying to pad Paul's record, to be honest, if it takes him eight to
1: one. I think he will just... I don't even care. don't know enough about this guy to have any idea about whether or not he wins or not. And when we say boxer, is he a boxer like Tommy Fury is a boxer? You know, like influence or boxing? Or does he actually have proper uh, actual fights in
0: terms of um, his 10 uh, victories? I remember us having a conversation about six, seven months ago where I said that Tommy Fury wasn't a a proper boxer and you disagreed. Are you now on my thought process that he is just another influencer boxer to be thrown in with the rest of the... Not if he
1: actually goes into the pro ranks and starts boxing actual pros, but I think it's made clear, and that's what he said he was going to do after the Jake Paul fight, but he's not going to do that because he's not going to get anywhere near the money he would if he carries on fighting. He might probably go back to like some ridiculously low figure, or you can carry on fighting these stupid influencer bums and make millions. So um, I think as much as I'd like to hope what he said is that's the case and see what he was actually like in the professional ranks, I just think the money's just never going to be the same. It'd be daft for him to do so in some ways. If you were his manager, you'd be, say, carry on fighting these bums and making 10 times more money than you would if you went into the professional ranks.
0: I can see the disappointment on your face. We nearly got through yet another episode without mentioning Influencer Boxing. And uh, I think it's been like three weeks since we mentioned it, but I I had to get it in there for you, mate. Yeah, that's all for this week. Uh, As always, we'll speak to you next week.